Amen. All right, how y'all doing with your Bible reading? Are you reading your Bibles? Okay, raise your hand if you read the Bible today, this morning. Anybody? A few of you? Okay, good, most of you. Um, how many of you are on at least a two-day win streak of uh, reading your Bible? You read it today and yesterday also. Okay, anybody about a week? About a few weekers? Good. Okay, what are you reading in your Bible these days? Say again? Chronological. Chronological? Good, that's what I'm reading too. So we've been reading the David stories. And uh, this morning, David was bringing the ark uh, into the city, into Jerusalem, and starting to talk about building a temple. And, and so we talked with Nathan the prophet this morning. Who y'all, what else are y'all reading? Obadiah, good, you keeping up with the weekly? Okay, now here's a question for you. We'll get to it today. You can answer it. How many verses is the book of Obadiah? Well, it's one chapter, but how many verses? All right, well, we'll get to it today. We'll get to it today. What else are y'all reading? Psalm 23? As part of a plan, or you just kind of felt led... Oh, great. So you've been doing sort of an extended study on, on that chapter? Great. Good. Anybody else? What are you reading? What are you reading? Anybody? Well, just let me encourage you, again, if the whole purpose of this class is just to sort of explain to you what's in there book by book, that's helpful. It's good. But the biggest encouragement I can give to all of you is to be in the Word and to have great confidence that you can really understand what the Bible is saying. If you give it your attention, if you focus and think and pray, uh, this book, which is an ancient book, can really come alive in, in new ways. It really can change your life uh, because we believe that the Bible is living and active. The Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to transform us day by day, slowly but surely, into the image of Jesus. It doesn't happen overnight. You don't plant a seed one day and the next day come out and have an apple tree and start making applesauce. It takes a little bit of time. But if you put in the work, you do the effort, it, it happens. I promise. It happens. All right. Well, this week we are talking about uh, Shirley's favorite book in the Bible, which is the book of Obadiah. Okay? You ready? Let's jump in. Now, I'm going to begin with a question. What do the following five people have in common? Now, don't just blurt it out. You gotta wait till we get to the end of the five people, okay? What do the following five people have in common? Gary Coleman, who is 4'7, Tattoo from Fantasy Island, who's 3'10, Muggsy Bogues, who is 5'3", Pastor Joel, who is 5'6 and one-half inches tall, and the prophet Obadiah, height unknown. Anybody know? They're all men. They're short. The answer is, they are all men, but the answer is, they are all short. Okay? In fact, Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament, and the fourth shortest book in the whole Bible. 
Now, can you guess the five shortest books in the Bible? Give me some short books. Second John, Third John, Jude, Philemon. I heard Ruth out there. We know Obadiah is one of them. I already said it. And he, okay, let's let's do our top five shortest books of the Bible. The number one, give me one guess, shortest book of the Bible, number one. It is 3 John at 219 words. Somebody guess number two. 2 John. 2 John is correct, 245 words. Give me the next one. 1 John. No, that's a good guess, but uh, it's not 1 John. Jude, Obadiah. Number three is Philemon, coming in at 335 words. We already said the next one is Obadiah, 440 words. And then somebody give me the next one. Jude at 461 words. A regular war and peace as compared to 3 John at 219 words. Now, the question then is, such a short book, why do we study the book of Obadiah? What is important about this book? How important is it? Uh, have you ever heard a sermon on the book of Obadiah? Anyone? Has anyone ever heard a sermon on the book of Obadiah? I don't think I have. If I did, I forgot it. I preached it. Well, then I forgot it. <laughs> you want to preach today? Come on, Obadiah, bring it. <laughs> Have you ever studied Obadiah in a Sunday school class before today? Anyone? I don't think I have. Um, if someone put a gun to your head and said, explain the book of Obadiah or I'll pull the trigger, what time of the, is the funeral and will you be serving lunch? Anybody? Okay. Well, my guess is that the book of Obadiah is often neglected, because, number one, it is so short, which you've already said. And number two, it is so specific. The book is only, uh, the book is only 21 verses long and deals with God's judgment against Edom, which is a nation that has not existed for thousands of years. Edom, if you go to the Middle East today and said, say, take me to Edom, they will not know what you're saying because it does not exist. So why should we care about this? Why should we care about a centuries-long dispute between Israel and the nation of Edom? What does this passage teach us about God? What does it teach us about ourselves? And most importantly, what does it teach us about Jesus? Does God have enemies? Does God have friends? And how does God lo God's love turn his enemies into his friends. Let's take a closer look. We're going to begin with the author and the title. The opening verse of Obadiah reads, The Vision of Obadiah. Now, what do we know about Obadiah? Can somebody give me some facts about Obadiah? Anybody know? Obadiah? Yes? He was a prophet. Good. So he received the word of the Lord. What do prophets do in the Bible? What's their job description or among their job descriptions? They listen and they warn. They listen to God and they warn the people. That's a good description. They listen to God, 
They warn God's people about judgment. Uh, sometimes we talk about the prophetic role in terms of two different aspects. We talk about foretelling, as in sort of telling beforehand what is going to happen. And then sometimes they are forth tellers. That's kind of what I do on Sunday morning. I read the Bible and I just echo what it is saying. I have no specific information about the future. I'm simply proclaiming the word of the Lord uh, that is received. All right, so the answer we know about Obadiah is we know almost nothing about him. While the opening verses uh, of some prophetic books contain some background information about who the author was, maybe where he lived, who he prophesied to, uh, Obadiah gives us no such information. It's just the word of the Lord from Obadiah. At least a dozen people are named Obadiah in the Old Testament. It's actually a, a surprisingly common name. Uh, but none of them are believed to be the same person who wrote this book, the book of Obadiah. For a long time, or for a time, the book of Obadiah was associated with the Obadiah who served in the court of the royal, royal court of King Ahab. Uh, that Obadiah, if you remember him, allied himself with Elijah and protected a hundred prophets of the Lord by hiding them in caves. You remember that story? Here it is from 1 Kings 18. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. Pretty good, Obadiah, right? So for a time, people thought, well, that must be the guy. It must be him. Well, unfortunately, that doesn't really fit the contents of the book. Our best guess is that our Obadiah, the Obadiah who wrote this book, is not the same Obadiah who protected Elijah and the prophets. Here's a quote from uh, Dillard and Longman's book, Introduction to the Old Testament. They write, This is without, a, without doubt an incorrect identification. The book speak, appears to date from the 6th century, whereas the other Obadiah lived in the 9th century. Does that make sense? So Obadiah, who served with King Ahab, is 9th century this Obadiah, our Obadiah today, is actually from the 6th century. Now, we do know that the name Obadiah means servant of Yahweh. Obed means servant in Hebrew. And uh, Ayah, or Ayah, refers to the name Yahweh. Anytime you see a J or a Y in names of people in the Bible, it tends to be associated with Yahweh. So if remember, we did the, the book of Joel. Uh, Yoel means Yahweh, or we sometimes say in modern English, Jehovah is sort of the transliteration of that. Yahweh is God, El. So anytime you get a J or a Yah sound, it usually refers to Yahweh. So in this case, Obed, Ayah, servant of God. Now, given Obadiah's condemnation of Edom, most scholars believe the book was written shortly after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. During the fall of Jerusalem, the people of Edom joined the Babylonians in looting and destroying the city. Uh, though there's no historical evidence to support this, some Israelites at the time, and for centuries later, 
believed that the Edomites were specifically responsible for burning down the temple. So there was great animosity uh, between the people of Israel and the people of Edom. You kind of think about it as the, uh, the people of Edom were opportunists. They're like, they didn't start the riot, but once it started, they were running into Target and grabbing stuff and running out. You know what I mean? So they were opportunists who sort of looted the city after the Babylonians started to, to destroy it. Here's Obadiah. Somebody read Obadiah 15. Verse 15. So that refers to, again, the people of Edom have done something sinful in the eyes of the Lord, and that is most likely their participation in the looting and destroying of Jerusalem. So it puts the date around 586 B.C. Now, uh, Edom's treachery against Israel is understood against the backdrop of the relationship between Jacob and Esau. Somebody tell me about those two guys. Who are Jacob and Esau? They were brothers. They were twin brothers. Who is their dad? You remember? Isaac. Isaac was their dad. Um, which one of the two was the favorite son of Isaac? Esau. Esau, Esau was, the was the favorite son. Why was he the favorite son? The hairy guy. I apparently liked hairy guys. Kind of, he was like a hunter and... You know, Jacob was a little bit more like his mom. He was a little bit more sensitive. He liked poetry and music and the arts. And uh, Esau was like, hey, let's go, let's go hunting, Dad. And so his dad preferred Esau. Now, what happened between the two of them as a result of this? You remember? They all lived happily ever after. And Yeah, that's right. It was treachery. Uh, Jacob so very much wanted the uh, love of his father, Isaac, that he tricked his brother Esau, and tricked him, enticed him into selling him his birthright, his status as the firstborn son, for a bowl of soup, which is a pretty low price to pay. For, <laughs> to, so that kind of is an indication that Esau didn't really care much about uh, the Lord God and about his place in the covenant family. He's just like, hey, man, who cares, you know? All right, so Jacob was the father of Israel, and actually, Jacob's name, his second name was Israel. Remember, God gave him that name after he wrestled with God. He said, your name is no longer Jacob, it's Israel, which means he struggles with or wrestles with God. So Jacob is the father of, Esau, of Israel, while his twin brother Esau was the father of the nation of Edom. Now, while Jacob and Esau eventually reconciled, their personal history of deception and betrayal and violence carried over into the ongoing relationship between the nations that they founded. After the exodus, Enum refused to allow the Israelites to pass through their land. And when Israel finally settled in the promised land, the two nations repeatedly waged war against one another. If you did your chronological Bible reading this morning... There's a, a couple of sentences in there at the very end about Edom, about how uh, David finally subdued the Edomites. Only they wouldn't stay subdued because they were kind of constantly at war until they eventually uh, ceased to be a nation. 
All right, let's look at the structure of the book. Obadiah can be, can be divided into three sections. First nine verses we'll call Enam will be humbled. You'll sense a theme. Uh, 10 through 14 can be described as Edom's violence against Jacob. And then 15 through 21 could be described as the day of the Lord is near. There's another alternative structure. Uh, we have the first announcement. This is a little bit longer. Uh, first announcement of judgment on Edom, verses 1 through 4. Second announcement of judgment on Edom, verses 5 through 7. Third announcement of judgment on Edom, 8 through 15. And then the promise of restoration and victory to Israel, followed by the promise of restoration and Yahweh's kingship. So again, overall, the first 15 verses of the book focus on God's judgment against Edom. Then the book shifts to, for the last verses, uh, the focus is on God's mercy toward Israel. Okay, so if you want to think about it, it's sort of two halves. First, basically two-thirds of the book is all about Edom. God's going to judge Edom. And then the last third of the book, roughly speaking, is about God's mercy on Israel, the restoration, and the grace that will happen when uh, the day of the Lord comes. All right, contents of the book. While the Bible primarily addresses God's covenant people, all the prophets, except for Hosea and Haggai, contain at least some oracles against foreign nations. Now, Obadiah is unique in that it is the only book in the whole Bible directed exclusively at an unbelieving audience. The whole book is really directed towards and against the Edomites. Our best guess is that God focused so much attention on Edom because Jacob and Esau were brothers. And again, it's sort of a, a double betrayal because they were essentially blood relatives of the Edomites. Whereas the Moabites and the Amalekites and all these other nations had, didn't have that close relationship. And so they get some attention in the prophets, but there's special attention given to Edom. Edom is subject to of uh, Edom is the subject of more separate oracles against foreign nations and more brief or passing hostile references in the prophetical books than any other nation. So you'll find more against Edom than anybody else. All right. Theological themes. Here's the first one. Who are God's enemies? So let's talk it through. Does God have enemies? Yes or no? What do you think? Does God have enemies? Yes? Anybody else? Does you think maybe God doesn't have enemies? Doesn't? All right. Um, what are the answer is yes, God does have enemies. What are some common characteristics or character traits of God's enemies? Unbelief? Defiance, selfishness, hate. hate. What else? Pride, Pride. ignorance, ignorance. Amoral. amoral, not concerned with God's law or God's commandments. Enemies of God's people, good. Well, in the opening verses of the prophecy, God condemns Edom specifically for their pride. 
Now, again, there are other aspects of God's enemies, but in this one, God really drills down on the area of pride. Somebody read verses 2 through 4 of Obadiah. It's on the screen, or you can read it in your Bible. Right? So pride and the reversal of pride. Now here's a question. Here's how Webster's, defini- Webster's Dictionary defines pride. Inordinate self-esteem or conceit or a reasonable or justifiable self-respect or delight or elation arising from some act. The question is, does our culture celebrate pride as a virtue or condemn it as a vice. Why does God condemn Edom for their pride? What do you think? In our culture, is pride generally considered to be a good thing? Is it considered a bad thing? When is it good? When is it bad? What do you think? It's good if it's a kid with their assignment, and it's bad if it's like your boss. Okay, so explain again. (laughs) So if it's a little kid, you want to encourage them, you're proud of them. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, pride can be a sense of idolatry, of saying, well, uh, you know, hey, if I need a little bit of help, maybe I'll ask God, but mostly I've got this. I'm in control. Got the strongest army in the world. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good, yeah, we can sometimes, uh, pride can turn in, we can have pride in sort of an alternative identity. Uh, you know, we say, well, I am proud to be part of this, this group, whether it's a racial group or, you know, uh, gay pride or sort of a sexual group or um, we can take pride or find our identity in our ethnicity and our gender in a million things. Um, outside of finding our identity in Christ and in the gospel and his grace. Yes. Well, it, no, so is that, you're proud of your grandkids. Is that good or is it bad? Would God condemn you for your pride versus condemning Edom for their pride? Because he condemned them for their pride. It's good unless it becomes an idol. Okay, flesh that out. You're right, but flesh it out. Yeah, do you, do you find your identity in them? Or do you find your identity in saying, 
I'm, I'm pop-pop, I'm, I'm grandpa, you know, that, that's who I am, and that's the most important thing, thing about me. Yeah. Go ahead, Ken. I was just going to say that uh, God was, quote unquote, proud of his son. And then mm-hmm. he said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And I think that's what John would say. Also. Mm-hmm. I'm pleased with his grandchildren. And God is, you know, he's, doesn't use the word proud, but he uses the word pleased. Mm, good. Yeah, that's good. Kate? So maybe we could say that the right, the wrong kind of pride elevates self, but the uh, right kind elevates others. And we say, yes, I, I'm proud of you for your accomplishment. Hey, yeah, you hit a home run today. That's awesome, man. I'm so proud of you. Well done. That, that would be good because it's not about you exalting yourself above that person. It's about exalting that person and saying, hey, good, good job. Yeah, Jack. Yeah, if I'm proud of myself for my accomplishments, I'm not giving attribution to God. Mm-hmm. Just yeah, if you if you say, hey, uh, consider the city that I have built, as uh, Nebuchadnezzar said, he went up on the roof and he said, behold my kingdom, look at what I have done, and then God humbled him pretty quick. Yeah, Susie. <laughs> Yeah, there's the, the idea that pride goes before a fall. Um, and pride, the sinful kind of pride, can give us an inflated sense of ourself and our abilities, so much so that we rush headlong into something that ends up being kind of a disaster. And that we don't need God. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good, good point. Yeah, Cindy? Think, uh, since when Susie brought that up, it, it reminded me of something growing up in Hawaii. That culture there is not that. The culture there is to be very, like, you got to elevate <coughs> you got to stay humble. It's even that kind of culture there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it's something that we have to think of as Americans and as uh, evangelical Christians in, in the United States mm-hmm. is in what way... Are we exhibiting sinful pride? And then in what way can we uh, be proud of people in a way that honors God? 
that elevates them and encourages them, but without idolatry, uh, turning them into an idol or committing idolatry. Ken? I was just going to say, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 probably says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. You may not even know what you're saying. So when we do it, trust God with our heart. When we do it, do something difficult, we're not to say, okay, I can do this. It's, you know, we say, okay, God, I'm going to trust you. That you'll mm-hmm. give me the strength. You'll give me the wisdom. You'll use my hands to war and my fingers to fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, good, Ken. Thank you. Well, here, I want to have you consider this quote. I think it kind of ties into what we've been saying. Um, John Stott said, At every stage of Christian development and discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. Do you agree with that statement? Why or why not? God gives grace without it. Mm, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if you think you know it all already, uh, you're not going to be a very good disciple because, <laughs> you, you know, you, what do I have to learn from anyone? Uh, which is very false. And often we learn from people that we least expect to learn from. You know, little kids, you know, people in nursing homes, people that the world says, well, they don't really have much to offer, you know, or uh, people that are, you know, Recovering addicts, you know, people who've gone through a lot in life where we say, well, let me teach you something. But in many cases, they teach us if, if we're humble. Yeah, that's that. Yeah, it keeps us from listening to people at all, even to try to hear their perspective. Well, good. All right, let's, we'll keep rolling with this. Um, in Obadiah, we see that God's enemies are people who oppose God's people. Don mentioned that earlier. Somebody read Obadiah verse 10. Uh, what are some of the ways that God's enemies oppose the church today? Outlawing prayer. Outlawing prayer. Mm-hmm. Ridicule. Mm-hmm. Redefining the family. Redefining the family. Good. Demonizing the church. Demonizing the church. Okay, give me some examples. I agree, but what what are you thinking? No, no, that's good. I just was curious. No, yeah, you're good. Yeah, you're bad. You're good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's sick. Yeah, it's redefining of the language. Yes, redefining the rainbow, as, uh, which is a symbol of God's <coughs> covenant faithfulness and his care for us. So, yeah, there's, there's 
What about, oh yeah, go ahead, Jack. Okay, in the sense of like re, re, uh, revising the history of the of the church and um, God's role in in history, yeah, that's good. Defining success. Okay, good, Karen. Good. That's a good point. Oh yeah, I mean changing, you know, uh, before Christ to the before common era, you know, this sort of redefining the eras. Uh, what does opposition look like in the global church, and how is it similar or different to the opposition that we face uh, in the United States? We heard, um, I've heard, I remember a story, one of our friends that we're going to see when we go to Uganda is my friend uh, Fred, and Fred Kabengi is a great guy, pastors a church there, and I'm going to be preaching at his church when I, when I go to Uganda, and uh, he told me that when he came to faith, uh, his father stopped talking to him, totally disowned him, uh, his mother and the siblings all stopped talking to him too in essence, to follow the will of their father. And he didn't have any relationship with his mother until his father died. Yeah, he was completely uh, disowned. And that apparently is not exceptionally uncommon uh, in cultures around the world where people can literally be disowned by their family, totally cut off uh, for, for having... Uh, embraced Christ and following Jesus and, and believing the gospel. In Taiwan, there's pressure uh, when somebody comes to Christ to uh, still worship, in a part of, still worship ancestors mm. as part of your family loyalty mm. to not only this generation, but ten generations of Chen's or Wong's going back. Yeah, so huge kind of sort of a more peer pressure or cultural or family pressure. Yeah, that it doesn't always need to come from the top down. It can sometimes come from the bottom up or from you know sort of horizontal sources. All right, if God's enemy, here, here's a question. If God's enemies oppose the church, uh, we can also affirm that God's friends support the church. What are some ways that we can support the church? Does that, does that logic make sense? When God's enemies are those that oppose the church, then his friends support the church. So what, how are some ways that we can, or what are some ways we can uh, support the church? Prayer, 
coming to worship services, participating. Share our resources. Share our resources. Yep, financial resources, our talents, our time, our efforts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, supporting people. Uh, come, not just coming here, sitting down, and then leaving, but talking to people and saying, hey, and maybe making plans uh, for outside the worship hour or the Sunday school hour to spend time with people so you can invest in relationships that way. Bring chicken wings to life group. <laughs> Bring chicken wings to life group. Yeah, Jeannie was saying, essentially, remembering to keep the main thing the main thing. You know, we can devolve into endless factionalism, um, not only between uh, Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians and Anglicans and all these different groups. There are probably t like 27 different uh, Presbyterian factions. You know, the old joke is, you've probably heard it before, it's like... Uh, why did the Presbyterian who landed on a desert island uh, build two churches? Well, one for him to attend and one for him not to attend. <laughs> right? One that he was for and one that he was against. We can sometimes, we laugh, but I mean, we can have that attitude toward people where we're, we're condescending to people or we're really kind of straining a gnat and swallowing a camel and sort of working against the church, big C. Are they the easiest, like you said, you think back to ourselves, um, people that you gave them so much help when you had a prayer meeting and mm. never had any people to be able to hear and get out the example. This is a great example. Would you yeah, that's a great point, Wendy, to say that we support the church, big C church, by uh, living like disciples of Christ, not just in the walls of this building, but every day in the grocery store, at restaurants, and in our interaction with the mechanic or whoever else we're dealing with, we treat people in a Christ-like way, thus bringing honor to the church and showing that we're friends of the church. Katie? Investing in the kids. Mm, um, good. Investing. it's like being a Sunday school teacher or just having conversations on a Sunday with kids that you see or as they get older, you know, asking them out to coffee and finding out what's going on and praying for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, many people have invested in our, our kids over the years in this church, and that's that's a huge way to be a friend of God. Mike? I was talking to Dr. when we were here. Mm. He was going to say, have you heard about Ralph Beacham? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. Good, good. All right, well, let's move on to the next theme. Uh, the next theme is the day of the Lord. Now, we've talked about this in a few books, but it's back. In Obadiah, the day of the Lord is a day for both judgment and for mercy. Here is uh, somebody read Obadiah verses 15 and 16. Okay, so in that vision of the day of the Lord, is the day of the Lord good 
or is it sort of good news or bad news? That's kind of bad news, right? Uh, As you have done, it shall be done to you, and your deeds shall return on your own head. That's probably bad, especially in relation specifically to the Edomites who have done many bad deeds. All right, now what about this one? Next two verses, 17 and 18. Somebody read those. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. And 18, I think it's yep. the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. The house of Esau will be stubble, and they will set it on fire and consume it. And there will be no survivors from the house of Esau. The Lord has spoken. So, good news for God's people, restoration. Bad news for God's enemies. Destruction. All right, let's do uh, looking forward to Jesus. Now, it's interesting to note that Herod the Great, who tried to kill Jesus when he was just a baby, was an Edomite. Do you know that? Uh, He was literally, uh, they call him an Idumean, which is just, uh, I think, essentially an Aramaic way of saying uh, Edomite. It's also worth noting that Jesus will ultimately fulfill God's promises in in the closing verses of Obadiah. In verses 18 through 21, God promises that the exiled people of Israel will not only return to the promised land, but they will also rule over the people of Edom. This will happen through a savior, or literally saviors, which is a possible reference to Jesus and the church. Here's Obadiah 20 and 21. Somebody read that. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepharad shall possess the cities of Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Ultimately, Obadiah is a dire warning for God's enemies, but a hopeful word of grace for God's people. Uh, Because God is just, he will punish his enemies. We know this. But because God is merciful, he will bring his rebellious people home. Once home, he will dwell with them as their savior and king, ruling over a global kingdom where the proud are humbled and the humbled are exalted. So that's that's the hope to God's people in exile, that one day their enemies who have led to their exile will be overturned, their own sin, which has been uh, led to their exile, will be forgiven, and God will dwell with them forever. All right, that's the end of this very short book, and we finish a little bit early because it is only 21 verses long, and so... Are there any questions about Obadiah? Anyone? Anyone? All right. Well, grab a donut and some coffee, and let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this book of Obadiah. Lord, it is such a short book, but yet in it we find words of warning for us when we sin. We find words of comfort through your forgiveness and restoration. Lord, we pray that we would not be proud as the people of Edom were, 
but that you would humble us, that we might exalt others, and that we might be proud of others for their accomplishments in such a way that builds them up and does not tear them down. We pray, Lord, that all of us would be friends of the church, that we would be conscious of those who would work to undermine the gospel and undermine uh, your people, Lord God. I pray that we would be aligned with your church and your people and that we would stand strong against the enemies of the church. Lord, we know ultimately this is only possible by the strength that we find in your spirit and the joy that we find in your gospel. And so we ask that you would be with us now and be near to us. Prepare our hearts for the worship service service this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.